Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Introducing Wondersweep from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Another interesting weekend just passed and I think an interesting week in progress. We had Deutsche Bank coming under sustained pressure at the end of last week uh, for no apparent reason or at least no reason that I can identify apart from the general malaise that's afflicting banking at the moment. But why Deutsche Mark and um, forcing the German Chancellor to come out and issue a statement that Deutsche Bank was fine. So interesting shows just how nervous markets are at the moment in relation to banking. Uh, you wrote a piece over the weekend, Chris, on our Substack account about planning and about wind energy and housing developments and so on. And um, I notice in the media today, the Irish Planning Institute has come out strongly opposed to the changes to planning legislation that the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, is trying to push through the system at the moment. Um, I think that warrants um, another discussion today. Uh, Every time, Chris, we talk about the intergenerational issue, and we've done this a number of times, uh, we've done it in some detail, we've touched on it, it always elicits a very, very strong reaction um, on both sides of the argument. Um, I was taken by a tweet I saw you getting recently from um, Professor Carl Whelan in UCD, basically telling you to shut up, talking about this issue, 
that younger people deserve, younger people who are working deserve to have a house to live in. Basically, that you shouldn't go on about it, that that is a fact, full stop. Uh, what strikes me about that is that it is a grossly unfair misinterpretation of the conversations we've had, of the pieces we've both written on this topic. Um, it is a very nuanced argument. There are many things that were certainly much worse in the 80s than they are today. Uh, there are some things that were better in the 80s than today. And I think we've given it a pretty balanced coverage. But And as a consequence of that, I was taken aback by um, Carl Whelan's comments to you. So I think we will revisit that today. I want to talk about Ivana Bacic, the leader of the Labour Party, who was speaking at that party's annual conference in Cork on Saturday night. And um, she was basically forecast, or sorry, promising that in government Labour would deliver a million houses um, over the next 10 years. So um, a million divided by 10 is 100,000. Okay, so 100,000 houses per annum. Um, what an achievement, given that we were building around 93,000 at the unsustainable peak of the Celtic Tiger back in 2006. Um, and finally, there's a lot going on in Ukraine. Um, so you wrote a piece again at the weekend, as you do every week on the Ukrainian situation. So I think that um, just worth touching on it to update us on what's going on there. But Chris, starting with the Deutsche Bank story at the end of last week, um, you know, we've seen in the last two weeks, a number of banks get into significant difficulty. And each time we're able to say, well, in the case of SVB, that Silicon Valley Bank, there was a unique set of circumstances here. Um, it had a lot of uninsured deposits because of the nature of its client base. And it had placed um, a lot of those deposits in long-term treasuries. And when treasury prices collapsed over the last 12 months due to Federal Reserve interest rate tightening, uh, a significant balance sheet issue. Likewise, with Signature Bank in New York, um, a similar story with a heavy concentration on deposits over 250,000 that were not insured, uh, but also significant links there to crypto and so on. And then we had the Credit Suisse story in Europe. Um, that's an accident that's been waiting to happen for some time because for lots of reasons, but basically it comes down to total mismanagement over many years. But a couple of major financial scandal stroke losses um, in relation to a few investment funds. So you could go on and on through these banks and say, well, yeah, there's a reason why in this environment of uncertainty, in an environment where the world is basically adjusting to a very dramatic increase in interest rates over a short period of time that you know you're 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 going to get these sorts of problems but then you look at Deutsche Bank and um from what i know about Deutsche Bank it is a much better managed bank today than it was in the past um looking at its financials insofar as i can understand the financials of a financial institution uh, they look reasonably solid to me but yet uh, we had the attack on that bank and we had the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz come out basically trying to reassure the world that it was a safe bank. What's going on here? 
Well, the Deutsche Bank story is, in stock market terms, a mystery because there was no news whatsoever that anybody could point to last week, no news of any kind, that would have led to the, uh, in particular, the price of its credit default swaps moved to suggest extreme worries about the ability of Deutsche to repay its debts. Bank analysts who know far more about this than I do uh, were scratching their heads and writing pieces extensively saying, what's going on? We have no idea. So it seemed to come out of nowhere, which in financial market terms does happen. These things uh, sometimes defy explanation and we're left creating narratives, often false ones, around developments in prices. But the fall in Deutsche's share price and the movement in its CDS spreads, as they're called, which are markers of its financial fragility, or at least the market's sense of its financial fragility, are a complete mystery. And it just shows you, I think, just how fragile sentiment is out there. It's better today, Jim, because SVB is going to be bought by a bank, I think, called Citizens or, or something like that. First um, Citizens, yeah. Yeah, and that, that's improved sentiment somewhat. We've also had a Fed governor uh, who votes on the interest rate setting committee of the Federal Reserve out over the weekend saying they simply don't know whether or not this banking crisis is going to lead to a credit crunch which will slow the economy. And they are going to look look at it very closely, he said. He didn't say what that would mean for monetary policy, for interest rate setting. But we all think what he's saying is that they are more worried than they were about financial fragility and that that will potentially affect the interest rate decision. I think it's honest to say that they don't know if it will. But my guess is that uh, it will mean that interest rates don't go up by as much as they previously wanted to and they won't go up as fast, though all those points that we've made before still obtain. But the Deutsche Bank story just tells you that sentiment is fragile. It can come out of this storm can reoccur out of nowhere. It's subsided today. But I think we should stay on alert. I think all investors, financial market participants are very much on alert. And so are central banks. I think the end game is that they can't raise interest rates now to the point where they say, okay, we'll do, we'll do the interest rate thing until we cause another financial accident. That makes no sense at all to me. Um, it could well be that what they've done already is enough in the, in the near or medium term to cause another financial accident. So they are, in my book, going to have to slow down. That, that's, that's the bottom line for this. And if it means they have to accept slightly higher inflation, in the short term, and maybe even a higher ultimate destination for inflation than they would like, that means softer monetary policy and stock markets like that. So today, stock markets, as we speak, have gone up. Um, the next time there's a Deutsche Bank or other bank story, stock markets will go down. So I think the volatility that we've seen in recent days is likely to persist, and it depends on which narrative you're going to run with. Are you going to run with interest rates not going up by very much and maybe even falling as the uh, markets now are playing with in the, over the medium term? One of the interesting things that's happened is the uh, something called the yield curve, which is the difference between short-term interest rates and long-term interest rates, usually of government bonds. In the US, it's been inverted, which means that short-term rates are much higher than long-term rates for quite some time now. And that inversion is still there, but it's much less worse, much less steep, if you like, than it was. The yield curve is a predictor, by no means a perfect one, of recession. 
And the interesting thing about this move in the yield curve over the last few days is the steepening or the inversion has become less steep. And that always happens just before a recession starts historically. And that's the interesting nuance of this is that the, the, the American bond market is now saying that if the if, it's a big if, the past is anything like the future, we are now going to start thinking about lower interest rates. Hence, the, pr- the price of short-term bonds goes up, their interest rates go down in anticipation of short-term rates going down over the medium term. And that the reason for that is the economy is about to go into recession. That's a forecast. That's what the bond market is pl- playing with as a forecast at the moment. So that's something that we're going to have to watch very, very closely, Jim. Yeah, I was watching over the weekend, there was a business, a very high profile business and economics conference in Beijing, um, where a lot of noteworthy speakers, but the message coming out from the IMF speakers was very much um, worrying about the health of the global economy, worrying about the the impact that the current banking problems will have on global economic activity. And basically what they're saying is that it is going to make the cost of funding higher for banks. It is going to result in a squeeze in credit for the real economy around the world. And as a consequence of that, the IMF becoming increasingly concerned about the health of the global economy. But yet the IMF in recent weeks has been coming out basically telling any central banker that, listen, uh, we need to keep increasing short-term interest rates to get inflation under control. So in a sense, there's a real double whammy um, hitting the global economy at the moment. And I I mean, I agree with you in, in the sentiment you express about um, central bankers should not now continue to tighten interest rates as they would have desired a few weeks back because the world has changed again increasing interest rates further in this sort of environment, in my view, um, and in your view, as you've expressed it there, would certainly be very destabilizing for global financial markets and for the banking sector. In, in a sense, the interest rate tightening we've seen to date, plus the credit tightening that is implied by what's been happening in global banking over the last few weeks, you know, should deliver that slowdown in economic activity and most probably the slowdown in inflation that central bankers have been trying to achieve and increasing interest rates further on top of all of that, um, I think would be a very risky strategy. But then again, um, I was a bit surprised the Federal Reserve delivered anything last week. Um, I was a little bit even more surprised the previous week when the European Central Bank delivered a full half of 1%. So just because we think something does not make it a fact. Um, it's how central bankers view the world at the moment um, is the guiding principle. I think there's no doubt about that. Chris, moving on to the piece you wrote at the weekend um, about all of the objections we see to planning around the place. And, you know, as I said in my introduction, the story in the Irish Times this morning um, about the Irish Planning Institute, which is basically made up of public and private sector planners saying that the changes in legislation that Darrell O'Brien is trying to push through at the moment will be bad and that they will make the situation worse. And they're basically saying that one of the biggest problems with the planning system is not the number of um, developments that are going to judicial review. It is basically down to a lack of resources in the planning system. 
And uh, there may be some truth in that. I, I don't know. But it is kind of interesting that when you get any attempt to significantly change something, um, vested interests within that industry or that sector will inevitably rise up against it. And in, in that regard, OK, we have the Irish Planning Institute today. I think what they're saying does warrant deep attention. There's no doubt about that to see is there truth in it or is this just a vested interest group trying to protect its own patch? But the other parallel would be in the health sector, for example. Um, you know, there is this health policy or strategy now in place, or at least the government is trying to push it in place called Slauncher Care. And basically what Slauncher Care is all about is creating a single tier health service, okay, where you go into a hospital um, you, you know, you don't have the choice between public and private. You get a public service in a public hospital. And if you want to go private, you can go to a private hospital and do that. But key to the introduction of Slauncher Care is the consultant's contract um, that is currently being negotiated between um, the HSE, the Department of Health and the consultants and the consultants are refusing to sign this new consultant's contract. And without that contract being put in place, Slauncher Care will not be delivered. There was a, an article in the Irish Times this morning from a retired consultant um, who knows what he's talking about. And he was basically saying that um, it's now up to the consultants to actually sign up to this. Um, it may not be everything that they desire, uh, but it's a, a reasonably good package for them. Um, and that this is now required to get Slauncher Care implemented. Here we again, we get a sense of a strong vested interest group preventing change and progress in the health service. Um, I, I, and I, I wouldn't for one moment profess to have expertise here. You know, I do think it's important that in the area of planning and in the area of consultants that, you know, all of the arguments put out there are actually closely examined and studied to see how much validity there is. But you do get the sense in all areas like this that vested, powerful vested interest groups definitely stand in the way of progress and change. And that's pretty much, I think, what you were writing about at the weekend. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, I specifically was looking at the provision of alternative energy production, in particular wind, but also a little bit of solar. solar and it was about both these islands actually, both the UK and Ireland, and the ways in which various interest groups always seem to A, mount a lot of objections to either onshore, offshore wind or solar solar fields. And it was a feature of the contest between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss for Prime Minister back last year, when they were both trying to become Prime Minister, both professed absolute loathing of solar and wind and you can if you just do a simple google search of planning objections to wind farms and it just spews out dozens if not hundreds of attempts to block these developments a lot of these objections are successful to the point where i think i've noticed that developers are just giving up and not bothering to even try for planning permission, certainly not at the rate at which they did a little while ago. And the reasons for the objections are often very interesting and, in my opinion, not terribly valid, but that's my opinion. And I focus on a few of those reasons. One was the visual impact of these things. I can't see how planners can determine whether or not something is visually attractive or not. That beauty is in the eye of the beholder and all that. I think wind farms actually are quite attractive things modern windmills, if you like, and old-fashioned windmills, we think look great. People paint them, photograph them, and all all that sort of thing. They're a tourist attraction in places like Holland. But that's just just an opinion. I think visual impact should not be a reason for, for disbarring anything. Indeed, if you look at the visual impact of a lot of our cities and towns these days, I would know these days more about the UK than Ireland, but the, the, the state of our urban architecture is dreadful. And that, that's my opinion. It strikes me that if you are going to do the visual impact thing, you need to do a better job than they have been doing. Another reason for give, forbidding these wind farms to be built in one particular case was because of bird strikes. And here in the UK, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds often objects to wind farms because of the damage done to wildlife, not just birds, but also things like bats as well. I think that's perfectly valid. I can understand why people get upset if birds are damaged or killed when they fly into these things. But context, of course, is everything. I found some statistics that suggests in the United States alone, a billion birds die every year through flying into glass windows. Uh, I don't don't notice anybody suggesting that we we should ban windows. The number of birds that get killed by aeroplanes is an extraordinary number. Um, So you could say, well, if you're going to be consistent in your arguments, you should always look to all things that damage birds. But the clinching argument for me that suggests that the the bird argument is specious is that there are studies out there, and I found one and quoted one in my piece that says that two-thirds of the planet's bird population is threatened with extinction because of climate change. So if you wanted to focus exclusively on birds, which is your, you know, your right, if you think that is more important than anything else, that's entirely up to you. And you you are quite right to worry about bird welfare in those circumstances, if that is your priority. I think we should be allowed to say that other things should be the priority, like the future of the planet, and that saving the planet uh, is, is actually more important than saving birds. 
and that through saving the planet, we might actually save the bird population as well. So your arguments do not, in my opinion, stand up. These are all particular examples of a general trend in our societies, which I think is very, very worrying. You touched on it there with your discussion of the health service. And there are so many other aspects of modern life that uh, one could point to that whatever anybody tries to do, and they try to, in particular, build something, anything, not just wind farms, but also houses and other things, uh, vested interests, shouty people, dark money form what I call blocking coalitions and nothing gets done, nothing happens. And sometimes the, the, the blocking coalition can be inside one person's head because you will get people saying, I'm totally in favor of all measures to deal with the housing crisis. So long as nobody builds a house or a block of flats near me, I am totally in favor of saving the planet and providing alternative energy and not sending money to Putin, because if we are going to continue to consume his gas and oil, we're sending money so that people can be killed in, in Ukraine. But don't build a wind or solar farm near me. Uh, you've, you've mentioned the health crisis as well. And there are just so many other examples where we just seem to have reached a point in our democracies where blocking coalitions, they might just be comprised of people who hate change. One of the great lies that we tell ourselves is, I embrace change, bring it on. There are significant numbers of people out there it's a great human thing to resist change and our, our, as i say our democracies have reached the point where nothing seems to get done it's particularly acute here in the uk um, you can call it nimbyism you can call it whatever you like but it is a real real problem and you know to quote churchill he once said the old cliche democracy is the least worst form of government you know i tend to agree when i look at the our democratic institutions are being, I think, exploited. Our rules, our regulations, our structures, our way of doing things can now be exploited by any Tom, Dick or Harry or Harriet to, to block stuff. And I think that we need to, to think seriously about how we, we get around this. Uh, I do absolutely abhor all of the world's dictators from Putin to Xi Jinping to Viktor Orban to Erdogan in, in Turkey who um, mock our democratic institutions um, and I, you know, I'm not sure that they represent decent alternatives. But when you see how little we are able to do these days, how we can identify these problems, we can identify the solutions. We know how to solve the housing crisis. And it's a housing crisis that is endemic in a lot of Western democracies. The United States, the United Kingdom, Ireland have very similar housing crisis problems, particularly in the major cities. And nothing ever gets done. And I think the reasons why nothing ever gets done, yes, there are some local factors, but most importantly, I think there are these blocking coalitions that simply stop anything getting done. And that's why I concluded, be very careful, and I know we've said this before, but it's worth saying again, when somebody like uh, that Irish politician you mentioned stands up and said, I will build 100,000 houses a year, talk is cheap. Um, what is really, really hard is actually the policy making, the experience the explanations to the electorate, these are the trade-offs that we face. If we want to build, we're going to have to build up, we're going to have to build on the green belt, we're going to have to do lots of things that locals are not going to like, and we're just going to have to do it in order to be able to build. One of the objections, Jim, that I saw last week to a housing development in Dublin, one of the results of the conclusion of Ambor Planolo to this included two sentences one was that we don't like this development because it doesn't have enough open space. 
And then later on, it said, we don't like this development because it's on the edge of the green belt. I mean, how you can put those two sentences in the same reasons for turning something down is utterly beyond me. So we find it very easy to stop things. We find it very easy to say no. And we find it near impossible to actually do things. And whoever wins the next election, I think is going to be faced with the same shouty people, the same vested interests, the same dark money coalitions that all combine to stop this from happening. And that any politician like Ivana Bacic, like Sinn Féin, who pretends that it's going to be easy, that they've got the magic wand, they've got the solution. People from San Francisco and all points in between to London are going to be looking and saying, OK, bring it on. Show us how to do it. We'd love to know. Uh, it's, it, I think it, it is incredibly tricky. On your point about those that say that when we talk about younger people and the blocking coalition to building houses for them, I think it's absolutely right to say, as one of those people that you mentioned there, that young people who are in jobs deserve housing. With that, we can agree 100% and more houses should be built. With that, we can agree 100%. My points are always that to ask the question, why is it proving so difficult and therefore interrogate those politicians who say it's going to be easy. The other point I make about comparing the 1980s to now is that, again, it's more nuanced, it's more complicated than the people who say, well, if you're alive in the 80s, look young in the 1980s, you could have bought a house. Absolutely. If you had a job in the 1980s in Ireland, you could have bought a house a lot cheaper than you could today. 100% true. But how many people had jobs in Ireland in the 1980s? An awful lot less than they did now. I'm going to simplify to make the point, exaggerate to make the point. But back then, you either um, worked in the civil service or the banks, as indeed you did, Jim. Um, in that way, you got an income that enabled you to buy or rent, or you emigrated and you got a good job and bought a house somewhere else um, or rented somewhere else. The decisions are not always as straightforward and the comparisons are not always as straightforward as people make them out to be. And the final point of my piece about the younger generation was that, yes, if you say that the only thing that matters for your definition of well-being for answering the question, is the younger generation better or worse off? If your only criteria is housing, then unambiguously, the younger generation is worse off. But if you include all the other factors, the people who examine the quality of life in a deep and meaningful way, and I produce measures produced by the United Nations, I produce measures that the OECD calculate, and they point out that um, Ireland's never been in a stronger position. The UN reckons that Ireland is the eighth best country in the world to live in. And that, just making those points, Jim, that it's more complicated, more nuanced, and it depends on which lens you look through it. I would agree 100% with those that say, if housing is the only issue, then you're worse off. But I would argue housing isn't the only issue. That's not to say, as some people seem to think we say, that, house, that we don't think housing is an issue. We think it's a major issue, a huge issue. And we understand the frustration and the difficulties that younger people face. But sometimes I wish people would read what we say and listen to what we say rather than putting words in our mouth. The planning changes that Darrell O'Brien is trying to get pushed through the system um, is trying to achieve many things, but basically trying to reduce the ability to have a judicial review on a planning um, application or the granting of a planning application and secondly uh, reducing the ability of any Tom, Dick and Harry who wants to to object to any sort of development um, and I think anything that actually frees up 
the planning process, makes it work more quickly, delivers more housing, um, more alternative energy, whatever issue we're talking about, you know, has got to be welcomed. Um, I noticed down in my home parish in Waterford, um, there has been a very, very nasty campaign going on over the last while about the, the, the move by three farmers to develop a significant solar farm in the area. Um, massive objections at a local level, signs up all over the parish saying that don't let solar destroy our community and our parish, um, etc, etc. It's it's quite amazing stuff. And then I see at the weekend um, on social media, uh, the, the, the committee down there who is opposing the development of this solar wind farm um, is now offering professional help to people in how to craft a letter of objection to something like a solar farm. So, uh, you know, we, 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 we cannot have it every way. We cannot be bemoaning the environmental um, issues that are increasingly afflicting the world and at the same time um, standing up against anything that might go some way towards helping solve that problem in the long term. Likewise, we cannot be bemoaning the huge problem for our younger people in getting on the housing ladder at the same time standing and objecting to every development and most of these objectors to these developments you know have one thing in common they're all middle to older people um, who are living in an area and basically don't want anybody else to move into that area um, I'm simplifying it a little bit, but that is definitely the spirit of nimbyism we see around the place. So we either get serious about this, admit and recognize what the problems are and do whatever it takes to actually solve those problems. It needs to be done as quickly as possible. I was minded at the weekend uh, by the stuff we've been saying and the reaction we've been getting to this intergenerational thing. Um, and there, there's there's an issue um, that has arisen once again down in Kerry, the famous Kerry babies case. Um, not going to go into the detail of it here, but you know it was a significant um, scandal back in Ireland in the early nineties, and um, or was it the eighties? Well, back back in the eighties, the nineties. Okay, um, I kind of remember, but reading up on that issue at this stage, you know the one thing that was so clear about Irish society at that stage is just how priest-ridden we were as a society, the inordinate power that the Catholic Church had on our lives and, and how a girl having a child without being married um, was socially, totally and utterly socially unacceptable. They became pariahs. And that's just um, another example of a huge scandal. There are many others um, that came from that period. So I would I would challenge any young person today to say that living in that type of society was better than where we are today. Uh, but it is nuanced. You know, there was stuff, as I said in my introduction earlier on, there was stuff back then significantly worse than today. There was stuff back then better and housing being one example of that. Uh, but you know, I love your point there that, um, okay, it might have been easy enough to buy a house provided you had a job, but that's where the real difficulty arose because forced emigration was the name of the game back then. Um, but, you know, having said we, all we, of... Jim, we could organise it if we were policymakers. Thank God we're not. But we could easily organise lower yes. house prices. We just generate a huge recession. 
so that house prices go down. But then there's no jobs, so people still can't afford them, even if the prices are lower and the supply yeah. is higher. These are mm -hmm. these are these are the trade-offs. These these are the dilemmas that that um, that we all face. And of course, we will not make those policy choices. We need to make better policy choices. For me, the interesting question, and I think I've supplied some of the answers, not all of the answers, some of the answers to why we can't do it, is I think these blocking coalitions. They just the politicians, and this I don't have much sympathy for politicians, but in this regard, I do. The people that elect them say they want this stuff to happen. They want a better health service, but they don't want to have to pay for it. They want more housing, but they don't want the houses built near them. They want the energy crisis solved, but it's nothing to do with MeGov, and so on and so on. And, and, and the electorate that elects these politicians to do something about it, at the end of the day, enough of that electorate, depending on the thing that's being addressed, don't want it to happen. So what, a, what is a politician supposed to do? Exactly. Yeah, pretty much ungovernable. Chris, in the short space of time we've left um, Ukraine, uh, you updated us at the weekend about what's going on there at the moment um, and the battle for Bakhmut. Yeah, I write a weekly, a daily war diary for uh, in one of my day jobs. And I summarize it uh, once a week for our readers on our Substack site. I'd encourage anybody to have a look at that. Um, the there weren't many headlines last week, but there was a lot going on. And it seems to me that from the intelligence briefings that we're getting from various agencies, from the various open source intelligence that you can now have access to in a way that we've never, never been able to see before, that Russia has uh, maybe, possibly just said to Wagner, the mercenary group, you're on your own in Bakhmut, and is pulling its regular army back to essentially dig in for the long haul and that defensive fortifications can be seen using satellite imagery to suggest that the Russians have given up on their spring offensive or are close to winding it down and are simply mounting fortifications in anticipation of the Ukrainian late spring, early summer offensive, which is much rumoured, much spoken about, not least by the Ukrainians themselves, to the point where one Ukrainian minister had to ask his people to stop talking about it because it supplies information to the army. Uh, to the enemy. Um, so we've got, I think, a building stalemate going along that war front, which is three times as long as the Western Front in the First World War. And I think that speaks to what the Chinese are up to with their peace plan that they reiterated last week. And I think what they want essentially is what I call the Korean solution, which is that to end the Korean War, a line was drawn on a map dividing Korea, North and South. The war officially never ended and it, it's an uneasy truce across a very heavy militarized zone. And that's what the Chinese, I think, are pushing both Russia and Ukraine to think about. The Ukrainians don't want anything like that, of course. But the open question there is, is well, is all of that correct? They're always propaganda and um, misinformation in the fog of war and all that. But if the Ukrainians do mount their counteroffensive soon or over the next few weeks and months, do they have the wherewithal to actually kick the Russians out, both from eastern Ukraine and or Crimea? And most analysts seem to think not. So again, they might mount something, they might make some small gains, but they haven't got the wherewithal, the hardware, if you like. To the, they haven't got enough Western tanks and other pieces of kit to kick the Russians out. So it all those different aspects of the jigsaw puzzle that is the Ukrainian war story point to a very prolonged stalemate, sadly.
Yeah, hard to disagree with that. Chris, good to talk again. Thanks, Jim. And we'll be speaking again very soon. Cheers, buddy. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 